with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 156th program of Think Again. Think Again is offered by Borderlands Cooperative. We have been trying to create positive social change for more than 20 years, meanwhile. Uh, I'm Jacques Boulet. Jennifer, my usual conversation partner, is not with us today. Today we're talking again about the National Disability Insurance System, the NDIS. And I'm having a conversation with Matt Lloyd Cape from Per Capita, uh, that understands itself as an independent uh, independent think tank, progressive think tank about the NDIS. So welcome again to Think Again, Matt. Oh, it's great to be here, Jacques. Thanks for having me back on. The National Disability Insurance System and its governing body, the NDIA, certainly have been in the news as of late and even before, uh, well before the recent election. In fact, it has rarely been not in the limelight ever since it in its initial launch some 10 to 12 years ago now, replacing a previously, a previously existing rather messy and paternalistic care and support system for people with disabilities. The new system was initiated or announced initially by the Gillard government. The Productivity Commission was charged with the development and modelling of the programme. It continues to amaze and annoy me, really, how any social policy item first seems to have to pass through a narrow economic microscope. But uh, that's a topic for another day. Initially, the NDIS system was tested in a few regions before being fully rolled out in some, uh, about six years ago, thereabouts. Listeners will probably remember my end 2019 interview with a community development worker, David, from Valid, a disability advocacy agency, who particularly criticised the lack of attention and funding for a community-based approach within the proposed system. This seemed to us an essential but missing component in the inclusion strategies NDIS was intended to pursue. However, Market-based service exchange seems to have, uh, as far as inclusion was to go. After about half a decade of NDIS implementation and growing calls by politicians that it may not be affordable and may need to be curtailed with ongoing complaints about the complexity and even the arbitrariness in the system service delivery, our friends at Per Capita have published two pieces of research about the matter. So that's where Matt came in. So welcome again, Matt. Let's first reiterate for our listeners what the NDIS really is about and what the political and economic thinking and context surrounding disability care and support in this country is about, of course, in all brevity. Oh, thanks, Jacques. Well, um, I think it's important to state that there's a lot of advocacy groups and academics and experts who are better able to discuss the, the political debates, 
the moral arguments and how the community campaigns led to a struggle for recognition of, of um, choice and rights for people living with disabilities. But from the economic point of view, um, in terms of the economic debate, a good starting point is the 2011 report on the NDIS by the Productivity Commission. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a really good starting point because it outlined both the costs and the benefits, economically speaking, of the NDIS. Um, and this was foundational in the concept of how a properly funded disability support and care service could be a net social and economic benefit. So uh, in the report, it outlined that the NDIS scheme should be seen as an investment, um, potentially with greater returns than costs. And that's a really critical point, and that's kind of been lost from the debate over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see these kind of investment um, outcomes in things like health and education quite clearly. Um, you know, with health, it's quite obvious. You know, if someone's got smallpox, they can't be a very productive worker and you definitely don't want them in your office. Um, <laughs> there's a similar logic at play with disability, but it's less obvious and less widely recognized. Um, now, in Australia, there's about 4.3 million people with a dis- living with a disability um, and they uh, have much lower workforce participation rates you know, something like 50% of people living with a disability are active in the workforce compared to about 85% of the population more generally. And people living with disabilities have about double the unemployment rate of people living without disabilities. So you can see how engaging and supporting that segment of community um, and supporting them into work would be really significant. Um, so there's kind of three types of economic benefits that you might find from a scheme like the NDIS. First, you have the economic benefits of supporting people with disability into the workforce, as we just discussed. Secondly, um, the scheme means that unpaid carers, um, which is a really significant portion of the mm-hmm. population, like one in 10 people in Australia provide some sort of unpaid care. Getting them back into the workforce can be really significant. Um, a lot of people have skills that are very different from care, but they get put into care because they have to look after somebody in their family. Um, and thirdly, there's a cost reduction in, in other services. So like in aged care, in other government services, disability adds extra costs and the NDIS can reduce those costs as well. So in fact, the Productivity Commission estimated that to outweigh the costs of the scheme, the NDIS would only have to produce an annual gain of about $4,000 per participant. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that sounds, economically speaking, quite good. But after a few years, occasionally marred by administrative hiccups and under the previous government's aegis, gradually, though, the financial sustainability of the program started to be discussed and questioned. So what was the gist of this questioning, really? Yeah, I guess it's important to recognise that the scheme did grow very quickly and, and far larger than initially modelled. So the original 2011 Productivity Commission report They estimated that the National Disability Insurance Scheme would cover around 410,000 participants and cost uh, just under $14 billion a year at maturity. Now, we already, we're not at maturity yet, but we've seen around 470,000 participants in the scheme this year, um, and the cost is likely to um, reach $28 billion. So these are significant increases in the numbers of participants and the cost per participant. Okay. Now... That's the kind of background of it. But the, the debate over the sort of panic over sustainability, um, I guess it's important to frame that in a, uh, a couple of issues. Firstly, there, 
what we're seeing is a huge amount of unrecognized and unserviced community need. Uh, so there's an incredible number, which is that 280,000 people are receiving disability support for the first time under the NDIS. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's something we should really celebrate. You know, we've actually fixed a significant problem in the society, which is that the previous schemes were allowing people to fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's really important, and that's a, that's a, that's a win um, if you... You know, from my point of view, and I think from most people's point of view, that's a big win. Um, but it's also because the states and the federal government have been winding back services, um, like tier two support services, you know, like support in schools. They've all been wound back, meaning that there's a cost shifting onto the NDIS. Okay, so I guess up until 2019, people were like, okay, it's growing faster than we thought, but it's, it's, it's still it's still sustainable. But then in 2019, the NDIA started to change their tone quite significantly, and this really um, started to worry advocates in the disability space. So um, in the December 2020 um, NDIS sustainability report, they changed their wording and forecast really significantly. Mm. They started to say things like, the cost base for the NDIS is becoming unsustainable and that the scheme needs needs to be reined in. and they estimated that the cost would be would shoot up to sixty billion a year, and there would be um, nearly nine hundred thousand participants in the NDIS by twenty thirty. Oh um, dear! Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the report was released in the context of the NDIA also pushing the idea of independent assessments on participants, which oh, a lot yes. of advocates were deeply against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very antagonistic towards the community because. They also, the NDIA was not releasing the data and modeling um, about how they were getting to these vast numbers. Mm-hmm. And that made people think this was a kind of a setup for massive cutbacks into the scheme. Okay. Um, so could you reiterate a little bit the, the macroeconomic arguments uh, you at per capita have made, uh, how therefore also the anticipated grow, could, growth in financial outlays could be dealt with? Yes, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like, the, the cost basis that they're looking at is one side of the ledger, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. we've already established through the Productivity Commission that the, the scheme will have costs and benefits, mm-hmm. um, and that the benefits could outweigh the costs. So when you have words like unsustainability in a mm-hmm. report that's only looking at the cost side, you have to start, you that's know, right. raising some flags and then questioning it. So we were commissioned by the National Disability Services Organization, I think they are, the NDS, mm-hmm. who are like a peak body for the um, disability services organizations, yes. um, to explore the benefits side of the equation. Um, and so I get, it's a little bit jargony, but there's something in economics called a fiscal multiplier. Um, and that basically means like what is the ripple effect of government spending in the economy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously like when the government spends money in the economy, like employing support workers, it has a direct effect of creating jobs. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it also has a secondary effect of stimulating economic activity around those support workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was at a conference recently and gave a, sort of an example of how a dollar in a disability support worker's wage might travel through the economy. And I think it's kind of a, a good way of explaining this a little further. So mm-hmm. let's say you've got a disability support worker, they get their pay from the NDIS. Now, let's say they, they go to work, and on the way they, they get a coffee and um, they fill up their, their petrol tank at the local service station. So that money from the NDIS is now going into the pockets of the cafe owner, who will then pay their 
milk distributor, their coffee roaster, their barista. And then there's another layer behind that where the barista goes to the shops and buys their groceries. So you can see how there's kind of a cascade um, of government money through the economy that stimulates demand. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Now, so in, in, sorry, yeah. uh, uh, no, if you're on. happy to go. Yeah, so in, in terms of the effectiveness of, of these investments, in social investments like the NDIS, this multiplier figure is particularly high. So most of the money goes to care and support workers. You know, nearly all the money is going towards wages and not much towards machinery and so on. Mm-hmm. And this creates something called high-velocity money because people, like disability support workers, they're low income, and so when they get their wage packet, they spend most of their money back into the economy again. So it's very fast. It's creating high-velocity money. And if you compare that to something like defense spending, you know, most of that money goes to big contractors overseas, buying submarines or not buying them, whatever the government's mm-hmm. doing, mm-hmm. you know, with a, with a timeline of a decade. Um, so the, the, the impacts in society are much lower for those sorts of spending. Yeah. So my colleague, Mike DiRosario, and I concluded that the, the NDIS was likely to produce around $2.25 of economic activity for every dollar that the government spends. Okay, okay. Yeah. So thank you for that. That's just sort of a lesson in uh, in economics and pro- probably even political economics. Yeah. Let's, let's have that sink in for a while and listen to some music. This Old Town by Roy Bailey, whom you know is my favourite. This old town should have burned down in 1929. That's when we stood in line, waiting for our soup, swallowing our pride. This old town should have burned down in 1931, when the rain refused to come. Air filled up our bellies, dust filled up our lungs, and we thought our time had come. This old town was built by hand, in the dust bowl of the motherland. There must be rock beneath the sand, I'll be damned. This town still stands This old town should have burned down in 1944 When the last men went to war They came back different If they came back at all This old town should have burned down in 1956 That's when the twister hit All our hopes were buried Beneath the boards and bricks And we almost called it quits This old town was built by hand In the dust bowl of the motherland There must be rock beneath the sand I'll be damned This town still stands Somewhere in the distance the city lights do shine Sidewalks gleam with neon dreams that fall from time to time And when my children's children ask me why I didn't go I say the heart of any town is the people that you know And they always call you home 
This old town was built by hand In the dust bowl of the motherland There must be rock beneath the sand I'll be damned This town still stands There must be rock beneath the sand I'll be damned This town still stands If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 Wellways supports 3CR. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today we're talking about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS, and we have uh, Matt Lloyd Cape with us. So Matt, with the new government coming in and Bill Shorten becoming NDIS minister, a lot of talk about mismanagement, lack of control and evidence of misspending and questionable employment practices has been emerging. What has your research brought to the surface in this regard? Mm. Yeah, so we've just published a report per capita um, called Contracting Care, the Rise and Risks of Digital Contracting in the NDIS. And in that report, we're looking at different employment models um, in the NDIS and the effect that those models have on workers and on participants. Mm -hmm. So specifically, we were concerned about the rise of Uber-style gig work in the NDIS and what the consequences of that might be. Um, so under this model that we're seeing develop, you know, it's, it's quite a small segment at the moment, but it's a growing segment of workers. Um, in this model, uh, an NDIS participant can go onto an app. They can scroll through different support workers and purchase tasks or blocks of time from them like you do on Airtask or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this could be something like helping with shopping or dressing and washing, personal hygiene, whatever it might be. Um, and now there's not a lot of data coming out from the NDIA about this. They don't gather information specifically on gig work in the NDIS, but we think it's, uh, it's a real concern. Um, so in this model, uh, other than I think one company, basically workers are not employed, they're independent contractors. And this means that they don't need to register with the NDIA. They don't have access to training that you have in a normal employment, you know, employment uh, arrangement. Um, they don't have the admin and legal protections of an employee, and they don't get superannuation either. Um, and importantly, they don't qualify for workers' compensation if they're injured at work. Um, and they also have to insure themselves for liability in case of an accident while they're with their client so, or with a 
their participants. So there's a lot of issues with this that we're really concerned about. Um, and the platforms themselves, they, 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 like the Ubers of the disability world, they take something like 15% of the contract value, and they take it mostly from the worker's pocket and then a little bit from the participant. Um, and the platform has no legal responsibilities, right? Like they, they don't have any responsibility to the participant or to the worker, um, no responsibility for verifying the skills or the appropriateness of the match between the worker and participant, no duty to resolve health and safety issues or dispute resolution or preventing uh, issues like sexual harassment and all these um, other issues that we know happens. Um, so we found many examples of support workers who were really unsure of their rights and responsibilities in this kind of environment. Mm. Um, and they didn't have many places to get information. So actually, we found a lot of people on forums on Facebook and other social media sites saying things like, you know, what do I do if I see my client stealing? Do I have to report them to the police? Or, you know, if I do that, they'll give me a bad rating on the platform and I won't get another contract. So you can see how there's like a real perverse mm. arrangement going on here. Um, and in terms of income, you know, a lot of people who use these schemes, they sort of have this initial um, buzz because they see that they might be able to charge like 40 bucks an hour. Um, but once you make the deductions for responsibility, like for, for their insurance and for their superannuation, their rate of pay drops significantly mm. and they might end up earning less than the award rate of 25 bucks an hour or so. Um, and there's also examples of support workers on these platforms taking advantage of clients and then disappearing as well. So one uh, academic described this as really the Wild West. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of a, a really important thing as well, which is that the legal parameters of this kind of work are really unclear. So there have been cases where people who worked as independent contractors for a single employer end up being judged legally as an employee. Mm. And then when that happens, the employer, who in this case would be the NDIS participant, would be found to owe pay, back pay, holiday, superannuation, and all sorts of other things as well, which clearly we don't want mm -hmm. um, NDIS participants to be, to be saddled with. Yeah. Um, yeah, another sinister area of this, well, I think it's sinister, um, is that there's a lot of private equity firms, international uh, private equity firms oh looking God. to invest in this model. Yeah, and, you know, just from a sort of moral point of view, the idea that NDIS money should be going off to pay dividends to international investors who have got no stake in ensuring high-quality care or working conditions, I, I find that a bit reprehensible. Yeah, calling it a mess yeah. is an understatement, I think, isn't it? Particularly I think so, yeah. Us, yeah. And also from the point of view of the people with disability, how are they being served? In, with all of that kind of a, yeah, it's, it's dreadful. Yeah, well, so um, it's, it is important to point out that some participants find this model useful. Mm -hmm. and, oh, uh, yeah. you know, and that there is a choice element here. Personally, I find the protection of workers argument should outweigh that. And also you can have app-based services where you employ people mm -hmm. rather than have them as independent contractors. Absolutely. You can still gather some of the flexibility of this new technology mm -hmm. without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and getting rid of legal protections for workers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we looked around at, um, at what the working conditions, how working conditions affect care quality. And mm -hmm. if you look at like nursing and aged care, the evidence is really clear that the more contingent a worker is, you know, the shorter their contract, the more independently they operate from their employer, the worse the care outcomes yes, are. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. there's sort of mounting evidence in the gig space as well that mm -hmm. um, 
these people take on lower incomes mm-hmm. and superannuation. And we calculated that a, a support worker who is employed might receive $526,000 in superannuation when they retire. But based on savings rates of gig workers, mm-hmm. someone doing exactly the same job um, might only, as a gig worker, might only take home $88,000 in their retirement. Oh, my so one goodness. Six, Oh, dear. The end of our half hour is rapidly approaching, Matt, unfortunately. What are you very briefly suggesting and recommending to Bill Shorten and the NDIA? What should I be doing to maintain the NDIS? But at the same time also address the things you have been mentioning very briefly because I also know that you need to go. Yes, I do. I've got five kids waiting to go to a magic show outside. Um, yeah, so I think uh, obviously there's, there's uh, representative groups and um, advocates who would speak better on, that, on some of this. But in terms of what our research suggests, we would say that there's a real need to rebuild trust between participants and the NDIA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that means opening up, having transparency over the data and modeling and assumptions that they use for these numbers that they come up with. Um, we also need to understand the workforce better and how many people are using these gig platforms and what the outcomes are. So there's lots of data gathering. There's also data gathering in the sense that we need to look at what is the effect of the NDIS on broader economic outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we need to do that cost-benefit analysis. I know you, you don't want to only look through the economic lens for social policies, but it is important to understand mm-hmm. what other yeah. benefits yeah. that the NDIS brings. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole raft of industrial relations reforms that we need to see. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, something that the government's promised some action on. Um, mm. And I, I know that there's going to be some sort of work done on regulating the gig economy. And that's something where Australia needs to play catch up. You Absolutely. know, in France, yeah. Um, yeah, in France, all platform workers are now employees of the that's platform. That's right, I've read that. Yeah. In, mm. in the UK, they have, uh, gig workers have um, holiday pay and sick pay. Okay. Uh, the U.S. are about to move on this as well. And if we, if we lag behind the U.S. on this, that would be quite something. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. So for, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We're running out of time now. <laughs> yeah. So thank you I very much. I could go much. on forever on this. <laughs> I know. I figure we probably have you back sometime. Oh, thanks I hope for, so. Yeah, thanks for having been with us again. And we're looking forward to a next program with you and with Per Capita. It has been you and... Bagapita have been great partners with us and organization whose purpose, Borderlands, is very, very much similar and, sh- and we share it very much. So the fight against inequality and the promotion of social justice in this country. So thank you again. Thanks, Jack. Uh, moving on to community service announcements, we actually just want to remind uh, listeners that NADOC week is still happening uh, under the motto of Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up. 3CR program, which is particularly also geared at uh, the NADOC week, is with the, uh, the Beyond the Bars program, which is actually interviewing people in six Victorian prisons during NADOC week. And that uh, the previous years of that program are also available on podcasts. So have a look, have a listen. And uh, another thing to remind listeners who like us to please, please, please uh, pay the money you promised us. <laughs> you promised 3CR to pay. And for those of you who haven't done anything yet, please, we are still a couple of hundred dollars short of the target. Thanks for listening to Think Again on 3CR Community Radio with uh, 
me, Jacques Boulet, and our guest, Matt Lloyd-Cape from Per Capita. Remember, if you want to send us a message or ask about anything from today's program, please email Borderlands uh, at borders at borderlands.org.au and just put Think Again in the subject line. Our programs are available by podcast and the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the following program, Jailbreak, which go- gives a voice to prison inmates, their families and friends. And to bring us into this program, we have Milkumana by King Stingray. <laughs> listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.